Good morning. It's good to be back with you all. Um, sometimes when the worship team finishes, I don't feel like there's much more to be said. Uh, they do such a good job. I look forward to worshiping here so much, just uh, just drenched in the gospel, the music. Um, so a big shout out to them. And also a shout out to, there are a lot of work that goes behind the scenes that doesn't show up on stage for that to happen every week. So very cool. Uh, if you will, flip to Acts 5. Um, so we're going through Acts. Full disclosure, I moved into a house yesterday. And it is a miracle that I have a blazer on. That uh, Yeah, so um, I... My printer wasn't working or hooked up, so I managed to get in touch with Mark and had him print out my thing, and I can already see he's added, I want you to know that Pastor Mark is the bomb awesome. So if at some point I start saying how great the Cardinals are or something, it's not me. It's Mark. They're overrated. All right, so we have been going through Acts with you guys. I've been going through Acts with you guys. It's been really great. Um, It's been an interesting journey. The point of it has been let's look at our family history. Let's look at the roots of what it means to be a Christian, of how the church got started. And it's a bizarre thing to do because if you go back to founding stories for anywhere, people like the founding stories to be based out of glorious victory out of conquest, out of invention, out of uh, just brilliant maneuvering. And God births his church through weakness, through suffering, through persecution. And it is, it's such a, I I find this to be one of the most, um, one of the most amazing thing about the scriptures that testifies to its authenticity is if I asked you to sit down and create a religion, and come up with its founding stories. I just don't think you'd come up with this. I don't think you would write a story with so much weakness on display and so much suffering uh, as we find in the scriptures. It is counterintuitive. It runs against everything we know and what we think about. So uh, we have, at this point, the church has been exploding in Jerusalem. Uh, The apostles have been healing people very publicly. Uh, They've been preaching the gospel and their numbers are escalating quickly. And we have this pretty remarkable incident in Acts 5, starting in 17. It's a long passage. It's a good story. Let's do it. Acts 5, 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked. And the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. 
And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, please bless this word. Your word is often hard and challenging, but it comes from one who loves us. It comes wrapped in grace. It comes from one who died for us. May we hear with ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so, as a father of many children, um, I'm losing count, uh, <laughs> three boys and one uh, baby girl, uh, I read a lot of children's literature and to my kids, and there's a lot of really good children's literature. There's a lot of just terrible, terrible stuff. Uh, the trip to the library is always really scary about what book they'll, get this one for me, Dad, you know. I don't want to read another PJ Masks book ever again. Um, if you have little kids, you know what that's about. Uh, anyway, one of the books that I just read uh, is called, to my sons, it's called The Quilt Maker's Gift by Jeff Brumbo. And it opens, and it's about this older woman who makes quilts all week, these beautiful, extravagant quilts that uh, everyone wants to buy, but she does not sell them. She gives them away. And at the end of every week, she makes this quilt, and she goes down into the town nearby and finds someone who is homeless and in need, and she gives them the quilt. And this is her weekly routine, and people from all over the world travel and say, can we buy a quilt from you? And uh, she says, you know, no, this is only for those who have nothing. Well, there is this king in the story who's, who's very greedy, and he gets gifts every year, and he celebrates his birthday, and everyone's required to give him gifts. And he celebrates his birthday twice a year because he wants more gifts, and none of the gifts make him happy. Well, he hears about this woman and the quilts she makes, and he travels with his army to the woman and says, I demand one of those quilts as a gift, which is a funny sentence. Um, I demand one of those quilts as a gift. And she says, no, the quilt's not for you. The quilt is only for those who have nothing. And he throws her in prison. 
the book ends well, there's more stuff, but at that point, <laughs> at that point as I'm reading to my sons, I'm like, this is a book about persecution. It's, uh, it's kind of a book about religious persecution. Uh, as Christians, we are those who have everything to give to those who have nothing. To those who say that without Christ I am nothing, there is everything. That is what we have to author, offer. And it also speaks to, I think, a fear we have, right? Um, a fear that Christ speaks about, frankly, that the scriptures speak about, that not everyone is going to love Christianity and the principles we have and the values we have, and it may lead to some dark places. I'm always hesitant to speak about persecution because I think uh, I grew up in a religious community that was really, um, I think maybe had a persecution complex a little bit, uh, was very concerned about being persecuted all the time and looking for it where it was not there. Most of the Christian rock music I was listening to at the time seemed obsessed with persecution and taking a stand and fighting the man, and I don't think it had a good effect on me. Uh, but we see something really different here. The, bo the book of Acts is a study of persecution. And as I said before, God doesn't grow the church through military or political victories. He grows it through weakness and suffering. And so we have to look at it. We have to think about what does it look like to, to stand out and to suffer for being Christians. And persecution could come in two ways. It can either come from the authority, as we see in this situation, or kind of from the mob or the populace. For many of us right now, I think... Um, the mob may be scarier than the government. Uh, we're less afraid of courts, I think, than we're afraid of the young girl who is pulling on Peter's sleeve and saying, hey, weren't you one of the disciples? Because that young girl has a Twitter account and a million followers, you know? Uh, and so I, I find myself pulled less in fear of government authorities and more in fear of uh, kind of the group of people out there. And uh, but both are worth considering, both are worth thinking about, and I think many Christians, if we look at the worldwide testimony of Christians and them suffering, have asked, and you should ask, well, what happens if the authorities turn on me? Will I love everything I hold dear? Will I be the kind of person who can stand up under that type of persecution? Will I suffer and will I suffer well? And these are good questions to ask. The last time I preached, we looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and it was a story about people who were tempted to put their religion on display to gain praise from people. This story, on the other hand, is kind of the B-side. The, the temptation here is to hide our religious lives to gain approval from people. This is a story about when it comes to it, will we deny Christ because we desire safety and security more than we desire the approval of God. There are many good Christian quilt makers out there who are giving a gift to give to those who have nothing. I imagine and know that many of the people in this room are that way, but we're often deeply afraid that one day the king will call us out and we'll be in real trouble. So what do we do with this impulse? Well, I would say that uh, Luke, in the book he's written, Acts, gives us the legend to this map, the key here in verse 41 where he says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. These apostles are going to be persecuted, beat, almost executed, uh, 
All of them but one will eventually be martyred, and yet they leave rejoicing. That should be as incredible to you as it is to me. I mean, it's in a remarkable passage, a little line there that I think stops us in our tracks and makes us rethink how we think about suffering for the gospel. So I want to argue today that uh, because they live through the spirit in an upside-down kingdom, uh, we can do the same. Because God is the true authority, we can live courageously through the spirit. And I want to look at three principles that I think helped the apostles through this difficult moment, which is because God's the true authority, we, we don't have to fear worldly authorities. We can speak the truth, and we can rejoice in persecution. We don't fear worldly authorities, we can speak the truth, and we can rejoice at persecution. So firstly, we don't feel fear worldly authorities. The passage here is actually kind of funny, because essentially it starts with the jealousy of the Sadducees, and if you think, what are they jealous of? The apostles are showing up, proclaiming the name of Jesus, healing people miraculously. People are observing this. They're trying to get near Peter's shadow because it heals people. They say they're from God. They're doing these miraculous things. And instead of going, wow, maybe God really is on the move, they're like, man, I miss when we were popular. That's their response to this. I mean, that's so insane, right? Uh, it's so unbelievably petty that it begins with jealousy. And it's almost like, no, 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 no. We are the main characters of the story, not these guys. We're the main characters. But in this whole story, they are, they are put in a position of reaction instead of action. They aren't the people instigating this. The most they can do is react and try to insert themselves into this story. And so what they do, and it's funny how Luke phrases it. He's like, well, what can we do to these people? And like, I know, well, you know, we can throw them in jail. We're powerful. Luke lets that stay for one verse. It's an immediate they arrested the apostles, put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel, they don't even get one verse to sit back and be like, ha we put these guys in prison. Angel shows up, saves them, like, no, no, no. Uh, you guys are not the heroes of this story. The comedy continues as they try to figure out what's happened, right? And they bring everybody in, and they say, well, where, where are they? Oh, they're not in prison. And they bring in all the guards, and the guards, I don't know what happened. We were chilling. And they're gone. And then when they go to arrest them the next time, they can't even arrest them with confidence. They have to do it kind of secretly because they're afraid of being stoned. So when they show up to arrest them again, it's like, hey, uh, do you mind if we arrest you? So they are completely stripped of all power. At every moment where they could show power over God's people, it's just hammer, hammer, hammer. They're, they are being shown their true position. They are not the true authority. And the takeaway here as we read is God is the true authority. He has a plan that is going forth. He is going to establish the church. And a prison cell is not going to stop him. It's going to happen. Any power that God allows authorities to have is simply power on loan. Allowed to move about and command, but it's not indicative of the true situation. God is the true authority. Kyle Don is a uh, pastor who just wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition. It's a great website. I recommend it. Read it a lot. He was talking about a moment. He was flying in a plane. He was going from Charlotte to Seattle. Apparently, this happened pretty recently. The plane had a technical malfunction, and they announced over 
comm that they were going to have to try a crash landing. Uh, and at that moment, he said, you know, everyone immediately plunged in. We, we were using wireless or whatever. We're uh, reading our books, and suddenly fear and contemplation of our mortality. And I would bet that that plane had every class represented on it. I bet it had upper, middle, middle, and lower. I bet it had politicians and lawyers and rulers and servants. Riding in the sky on one of the greatest technical marvels humanity has ever made, we could fly. Uh, some comedian who said, every time we're in the air, we should just be screaming, you know? Whoa, we can fly! Like, well, that's like how amazing it is. What a testament to human ingenuity, and yet, <laughs> and yet, immediately reminded that it's all temporal. It's all here and then gone. In that moment, none of it mattered. Nobody's bank account numbers, nobody's success or performance. Nobody, I predict, in that last moment was bragging about their resume to the person beside them. Everyone was on the same plane, and that plane was going down. Uh, one of the facts of life is that one day we die. We're all on the same plane in that way. All of the power in this world comes to nothing, ends in impotence. As powerful as the government and the worldly authorities may seem, one day they don't mean much. I believe the apostles aren't afraid because deep down they know this in their gut. And this is a short trip that as terrifying as the authorities can seem to them, they hold very little power. That God's plan will come to fruition. God's will will be done. Even the breath we have, the breath that the Sadducees had to question the apostles was divinely given to them by a loving creator. So because God is the true authority, we don't fear worldly authority. You do not have to fear worldly authority. But also because God is the true authority, we speak the truth. And what's interesting about this story, as Kyle Don says, as the plane is preparing to land, he says first he's with his wife, and he looks to her, and they recite uh, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism to one another. Uh, I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, reminding themselves of the gospel. And at that point, he turns to the person on the flight beside him and begins saying, like, hey, I, would you mind if I told you why I'm not afraid of the next few minutes? Uh, and he began to say loudly um, so that people could hear. He says, I don't want to scare anyone, but I want you to know why my wife and I have hope right now. We have peace with God. And he said at this point, a couple of heads turned and looked at him. The God who made everything wants to make peace with us, even though we've broken his world. He loves you so much that he left heaven to make peace with sinners by dying on a cross. His name is Jesus. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the risen Lord and you'll have peace with God. And as he pointed out, if he had done that while the plane was just cruising, no one would have listened, right? Uh, in fact, they probably would have called him insane. But at that moment, he says, no one laughed and no one scoffed because the truth of our situation had hit. And that truth that he said, it suddenly resonated, right? Maybe there is something I need to think about. Maybe we have broken his world. Maybe there is someone who's made peace with God. Uh, the flight made it, obviously. They're cool. Um, 
But he did say, he pointed out it was interesting getting off the plane and seeing how quickly people just went back to their phones and Netflix, right? Um, oh, we're okay. Uh, we don't have to deal with this. But this is the role of the apostles, isn't it? And our job as well is to say the truth about the situation. The truth is that we have broken the world. We have uh, offended God, but that he has sought to make peace through Jesus. And that's the truth, and we proclaim that truth. The apostles proclaim that truth here. And I want to point out two things that they do here. One is the apostles speak from both strength, and two, they speak from weakness. So before this passage starts, they're speaking from a position of strength. They're wandering around. They're healing people. They're the best. I don't, I don't think they felt this way about themselves, but they look like they're the best. They're in the temple. They are the one instigating. And then they're put in this position of weakness where they are on trial. Right? So they, they preach from strength. They preach from weakness. But even in that position of weakness, listen to what Peter says. It's a little like uh, Reverend Don's statement he said to the flight. He said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Quick gospel presentation. Uh, sometimes I think that uh, I have a moment that's haunted me a little bit from the end of my last school year, where I had two students ask me, um, Kind of a hot button theological question and it felt a little like a trap to me and at the time I said you know I'm not gonna have that conversation with you guys and looking back on it I think I made the wrong decision and I think as I reflect on it what was going through my head was uh, as I, I, I have a public position where I get to speak God's Word it's really cool and that's a position to me of strength I get to write exactly what I'm gonna say I get to plan it out. I can picture it. I can think about how people will respond. And in that moment, those students put me in a position of weakness, right? I was, it was not how I wanted it to be. And, uh, I was going to have to react. I couldn't control my audience. And maybe I would say the wrong thing. And I backed out of it. What's amazing about the apostles here is it doesn't matter if it's strength or weakness. They're going to proclaim the truth. They're not afraid of the world's authorities or the Twitter sphere or whatever. They fear God more than man. Here's the thing. I think those who are going to respond to God's voice will hear it even if we are imperfect in our presentation of that gospel. And those who are against God and have hardened their hearts will hear it even if we say it in the most unbelievably winsome and compelling way ever. Right? And if that's true, I think in those moments of weakness, what I should have done moment is said, I'm not going to say this perfectly. This may not have the, I may not perfectly get the balance of grace and love and justice and all that. I may not do that, but I need to say the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, from one coward to another, I have some practical suggestions as I've thought about this. I think as we move into our relationships, I think a lot of us, um, it's like we're in combat, but we're mostly just hiding in the trenches. And as we look at the apostles, they are, they are going out. They know the war has been won. They know that this is a, a short time to proclaim the truth and tell people about the gospel of Jesus. And I think that a couple of things that I've seen help. My, my dad is a teacher at public school in South Carolina. 
And he makes it a high priority within the first two weeks of his class to mention that he's a Christian somehow in his class. He's been doing it every year. I actually think that's a really great first thing to think about. As you're starting a relationship with somebody, just try within the first you know, week or two of knowing the person to mention you're a Christian. Uh, not with any game, but let people know that you're a Christian. I think that would be cool. I think it will open up some doors for you, potentially. I think we need to look for places where the Spirit is already moving. I think we need to pray for opportunities to share the gospel uh, and begin looking for those situations in strength and in weakness. So we, we, have to, we have this true authority. We don't have to fear authorities. We can speak the truth in strength and in weakness. But now when the apostles tell the truth in this story, things go pretty well for them, right? Um, I mean, they get beat, and that is a real beating. They get the 40 lashes is probably what happened. They really get whipped. But in general, they get freed from prison. Uh, they are not killed. And there's a lot to be like, wow, God really delivered them. Does God always miraculously save his people from persecution? No. And in fact, the very next story is going to be about Stephen, who is brought to the mob this time, and he is not delivered by God in that way. God is very clearly present with him, but he dies for his faith. And it's clear that these two stories are juxtaposed to say God is the true authority, God is the one we must fear, we tell the truth, we let the chips fall where we may. But it brings us to our final point here. Because God is the true authority, we rejoice at persecution. And this is the just very mind-blowing, hard-to-handle thing in this passage. Uh, it's that verse 41 again. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So, what does this mean? How could they do this? How could they rejoice while bad things are happening to them? We're not even good at rejoicing when good things happen to us. You know? I'm not. I mean, how, how frequently do you get good gifts and you're like, I don't think I ever thanked God for that thing. I don't even rejoice in good things. And here they are rejoicing in difficulty and suffering and persecution that they've received. I think they know that persecution is not a divine accident, but it's very, very often the way that God's kingdom goes forward. And they're so plugged in to God's kingdom going forward that they rejoice that they're able to do that. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a friend who is, just loves you so much that it is an honor for them to serve you in something difficult. Uh, they're excited about doing something. Or you're in a, a situation where the boss gives you a really high order, a really tough thing to do. And you're like, oh, you're going to trust me to do that? Yes, you know. You're excited. You feel honored and privileged. It's clear that's how the apostles feel about this. God may call us to some hard things, but it's always God who is calling us. And it's clear that he's with the apostles here, and it's clear when Stephen dies, he is with Stephen. No matter how it goes, his presence is there. So how can we exhibit this kind of character? How can we become people like this? Because when I read this, I see the gulf between myself and this passage is very large. How can we exhibit this kind of character? Well, I had them uh, read a passage from Hebrews. And there's this crazy story in the Old Testament. I refer to it a lot. I think about it a lot. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham has been wanting a son for a really long time. God gives him the son Isaac. And at this, at this moment in Genesis, God says, I need you to sacrifice your son. 
Now, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot to unpack. Some of it is what God is doing at that moment. A lot of religions at that time thought that child sacrifice was acceptable. And when Abraham gets to the top and shows he's willing to do it, God intervenes, stops, and there's a way God is saying, I'm not, I demand obedience, but I'm not the kind of God who will ever ask you for something like that, right? Uh, I'm, I'm a different type of God. So there's a whole thing to dive into that. But I want to think about Abraham going up this mountain to sacrifice Isaac, to give away the thing he treasures the most. And I promise this connects. Hang with me. Abraham has been asked by God to give up the thing he holds the most dear. And I think what's frightening as you think about persecution is it feels like it asks us to do similar things, right? To give up reputation, to be mocked, uh, to be professionally made fun of, you know, uh, for people to talk behind our backs and say, like, oh, they're the weird who believe these kind of things and they're crazy, and uh, to not be held in respect by the culture, um, all these things. And so uh, as Abraham walks up the mountain, I've thought a lot about him. What does he do to prepare for that moment? Do you think that anticipating it made it any easier? Do you think that as he's going up, he's like visualizing it over and over or, oh, I know this is going to be hard, yeah? I don't really think that did it. I think some of us think if we just kind of are constantly visualizing terrible things and anticipating terrible things, that will somehow make us better at enduring them. But we know that's not true. If that was true, pessimistic, anxious people would be great sufferers, and we're not very good sufferers, right? Uh, those of us who are constantly ruminating on terrible things that could happen, when the terrible thing actually happens, we're still not very good at handling it. Maybe devaluing things would make it easier. Did Abraham take Isaac as he's going up and go, Isaac wasn't ever really that important to me. Uh, I didn't really love him that much. Um, no, it's, it's hard to even say. It's ridiculous. Devaluing things doesn't seem to be the answer. Well, my life isn't that important or yada, yada. So what is it? What's the secret code? How does Abraham take Isaac? How do the apostles go into this moment, get persecuted, and rejoice as they're leaving? They value Christ more than anything. Abraham was able to do that thing because his eyes were on a good God. He trusted him and knew he would make all things right in the end. And because of that, he could walk up the mountain with Isaac, fully loving God, fully valuing and loving Isaac, fully hoping and fully suffering. Becoming uh, more like Christ probably means we cry more that our hearts are more open because we hope more and we love more. We don't devalue, we don't constantly visualize the horrible things. We lock in on Christ and focus him. Abraham did not numb himself to the pain. He leaned into Christ and kept his eyes on the heavenly country. And I want to end with this. In, in 2017, uh, we, we uh, live in a very different situation. Many Christians worldwide suffer real physical persecution on a frequent basis. And in 2017, during Palm Sunday, two bombs exploded in Egypt, one inside a church and one outside of a church, and many were killed, over 40. And the images that came back were very jarring, pews overturned and um, blood-stained walls. And that Monday, uh, one of the priests, Boule George, gave a sermon when he said this. I'm going to read a bit of it because it's just incredible. So this is the Monday after the Palm Sunday, the Monday after the bombs go off on Palm Sunday. And he says this, the first thing we'll say is, thank you very, very much. And you won't believe us when we say it. You know why we thank you? I tell you, 
You won't get it, but please believe us. You gave us to die the same death as Christ, and that is the biggest honor we could have. Christ was crucified, and this is our faith. He died and was slaughtered, and this is our faith. We thank you because you shortened for us the journey. When someone is headed home to a particular city, he keeps looking at the time, when will I get home, are we there yet? Our friends are there. The second thing he'd want to say is that we love you. We Christians don't have enemies. We don't have enemies. The Christian doesn't make enemies because we're commanded to love everyone. And so we love you because this is the teaching of our God, that I'm to love you no matter what you do to me. And at this point, he begins speaking to his audience, and he says, we need to pray for them so that they can sleep at night. A person who has all this inside them, how can he sleep comfortably? Can you imagine? We are being slaughtered, and the king of peace gives us peace to sleep, and the one who slaughters all night, he can't sleep. You know where this happens in the Bible? With Daniel and the king. Daniel's put in the lion's den, and he stays up all night praising God and praying for the king, and the king is up all night, tossing and turning, unable to sleep. Pray for them. Take it as a command. Take it as a duty. Take it as the application of Christ's instructions. Because if they knew him, they could never do this. So last thing I would say, and here's the encouraging thing, the same spirit that led Boulay George to say that, the same spirit that led the apostles to speak in strength and weakness is the same spirit that you and I have in the Holy Spirit. That is the same spirit that you and I have. When we read these and we say, I could never do that, we say, amen, but the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit that we have access to is the same Holy Spirit that has suffered for Christ on time and time again, has caused people who never thought in a million years they could look at their murderers and say, I love and pray for you. And that spirit led, he, he didn't say this because he's, amazing human being. He said this because the Holy Spirit is guiding him. He is dependent on the Holy Spirit. If we see something like Boulay George say that and say, oh, I've just got to get better, we missed it. The answer is to look to Christ. Only by the Holy Spirit is this kind of action possible. We're all on a plane that's going down, but if we love those who are around us, we have to tell the truth. There's one who gives us a way to have peace with God, and his name is Jesus. As Paul would say, you and I, we have been crucified. We've already been crucified with Christ. We have already been crucified with Christ. The great humiliation, it's happened. Jesus died on the cross. We have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer us who live. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Let's pray together. Father, we know this is a hard word. We know it's something that you like us to think about from time to time. You, you draw attention to the fact that, that life can be hard for Christians on occasion. You ask us to count the cost. To ignore this part of the faith is to not tell the truth about who you are and what you call us to. But we also know that you are the true authority and that you love us that this life is short, it's like a vapor, a mist, and that very, very soon we will be with you. We long to hear those words, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. 
Thank you for being with us this morning. And in Jesus' name, amen.